0: We believe A.Q Khan remains a serious proliferation risk. The proliferation support that Khan and his associates provided to Iran and North Korea has had a harmful impact on international security and will for years to come.
1: I have met A.Q Khan and uh, I was in awe of the man, very um, charismatic personality. I still remember it was in the Pearl Continental Hotel in Islamabad. He asked me about my interest and he he took very keen uh, interest in my answer and that to me was uh, very important at that time.
2: It's August in 2003. Five cargo containers are loaded onto one of the thousands of nondescript cargo ships that pass through the Straits of Malacca every day. Cargo is labelled as used machinery parts. The ship crosses the Indian Ocean to Dubai and is then transferred onto another ship called the BBC China, which then heads through the Suez Canal bound for Libya. American intelligence operatives have been tracking this shipment. Washington gives the orders and the ship is seized. The containers are found to be holding hundreds of pieces of specialised machinery needed for the manufacturing of nuclear bombs. The seizure of the cargo is the start of the unravelling of the world's largest black market nuclear proliferation network, a network that sold bomb designs and blueprints to regimes in Iran, Libya, and North Korea. The man at the center of this expansive network is Dr. Abdul Qadir Khan, a Pakistani scientist whose label as the father of the Pakistani bomb had made him a national hero in his home country 30 years earlier. A.Q. Khan is known throughout the
0: world as the father of Pakistan's nuclear weapons program. What was not publicly known until recently is that he also led an extensive international network for the proliferation of nuclear
2: technology and know-how. This is the story Pakistan's bomb and the life and legacy of A.Q. Khan. If we want to better understand the motives of A.Q. Khan in Pakistan, We first need to understand the country's complicated relationship with its ancestral twin India. In 1947 the British leave India and the country is partitioned into two. In the outbreaks of violence that ensue from partition between one to two million people die and from day one the nature of Indian and Pakistani relations are characterized by hostility.
1: The primary reason behind this visible pakistan india animosity is kind of a at one level clash of identity at another level this is because these are twin countries or twin states uh, which which uh, decline and refuse to be uh, to accept the fact that they were twins but they're caught in this identity conflict and and then Pakistan started off badly in terms of infrastructure, in terms of economy, in terms of um, their, their even social cohesion. Pakistan uh, uh, felt this insecurity um, even more than India.
2: That's Hassan Abbas. He's a professor of international security at the National Defense University in Washington DC. He's recently written a book on A.Q. Khan and Pakistan's bomb.
1: The policy decisions on both sides uh, the different wars and conflict on who owns kashmir is a consequence of that identity clash uh, that some both both these countries have forced upon themselves
2: in the early 1960s pakistan's feeling of national insecurity is put to the test when rumors of india pursuing its own nuclear weapons program begin
1: Because Pakistan, from day one, was uh, looking at India always, that's when the first, you can say, the the bricks of this new building were started to be collected.
2: It's in the 1970s when the idea of Pakistan first developing a nuclear program begins to take shape. The early 1970s, a tumultuous time for Pakistan. In early 1971, it faces a brutal separatist movement with Bangladesh eventually becoming an independent state. It loses half of its population and land overnight. And later that year, Ali Bhutu becomes prime minister under a new democratic model. On the 18th of May in 1974, it receives yet another blow when India conducts a successful nuclear bomb test, what they call a peaceful nuclear explosion. Ali Bhutu addresses the nation in response.
1: Let me make it clear that we are determined not to be intimidated by this threat. I give a solemn pledge to all my countrymen that we will never let Pakistan be a victim of nuclear blackmail, nor will we accept Indian hegemony or domination over the
2: subcontinent. It was in this ferment of change and insecurity that in 1974, Prime Minister Boudou receives a letter by a then-unknown scientist working in the Netherlands. The author is a man called A.Q. Khan, a Western-educated, trained scientist working for a company called Urenko in the Dutch town of Alamo.
1: First, the letter came in and it got almost lost among the bureaucrats. A.Q. Khan had some links um, through family and he was able to uh, ensure that his letter gets to the table of the Prime Minister. And Bhutto immediately tasked uh, Munir Ahmed Khan to, to talk to uh, A.Q. Khan and figure out uh, what are the credentials of this man.
2: The company that Khan was working for at the time, Uranco, was pioneering an advanced method of nuclear fuel production through a technique of centrifugal uranium enrichment. After several secret meetings in the Netherlands and in Islamabad, Bhutu decides to accept Khan's offer.
1: It, it was a new ray of hope for, for, for the politicians, at least. Zulfikali Bhutto being led by Zulfikali Bhutto knew that um, they 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 wanted a nuclear weapon.
2: But Khan doesn't leave for Pakistan immediately. He stays on as an employee for Urenco for one more year secretly collecting and copying documents and materials for Pakistan's nuclear program.
1: And he said, "Okay, let me stay on for some time so that I acquire more uh, knowledge and um, get hold of necessary documents. Um, He was almost now spying for the Pakistani program. He he was collecting all he could get his hands on so that when he's in Pakistan, he really has all the necessary information, connections, data to, to pull it off.
2: It's not until December the 15th in 1975 that Khan suddenly leaves for Pakistan with a small suitcase carrying the hundreds of stolen blueprints for centrifuges, nuclear components and contacts to over a hundred companies that supply technology for uranium enrichment. Now in Pakistan, Khan goes to work and soon sets up his own laboratory. Throughout the late 70s and 80s, he uses his extensive global network to help build his bomb.
1: These were the networks that he knew because of his work. So without that network and without those friendships, he had, he had his professors, he had his colleagues, and he used all of them. And this is all public information now. There have been many investigations. There have been many cases where some of the colleagues who had helped A.Q. Khan later on were investigated, prosecuted as well in some cases. So A.Q. Khan was, was ahead of others because of his contacts and because of his experience that he had gained working in uh, in Europe.
2: While we don't know for certain exactly when Pakistan achieves nuclear weapons capabilities, investigators have found a letter that AQ Khan sent to then military dictator General Zia al-Haq in 1984. In his letter, Khan claims that his laboratory had achieved nuclear detonation capabilities earlier that year. During the late 70s and 80s, growing concern had begun to be raised among the international community as to what exactly were Pakistan's nuclear ambitions. Yet the country's leaders strongly deny any aims of building nuclear weapons. Here's General Zia in an interview with American media in 1987.
1: Why should Pakistan indulge in the proliferation against which Pakistan on principles is opposed to? Our effort is only in the technical field for peaceful purposes. They're just uh, enriching uranium to a particular degree. That's all.
0: You want to use nuclear energy to create electricity. Yes, sir. Civilian right. uses of nuclear energy. That's right. Then I've, I've, Mr. I've President, you've got the best of all worlds. You have created the illusion, and that would be your word, yes. that you have the bomb, but you don't have the bomb, so you're still going to get the American aid, and you're still going to keep India off balance.
1: I'm not indulging in self-praise, but Pakistanis are intelligent people. <laughs> in
2: 1998, India conducts their second test, detonating five nuclear bombs. In response, Pakistan detonates six. The message to India is clear, and Pakistan officially becomes the seventh country to successfully develop and test nuclear weaponry. Nawaz Sharif, The then Prime Minister of Pakistan makes the announcement. Pakistan today
1: successfully conducted nuclear tests. Pakistan has been obliged to exercise the nuclear option due to weaponization of India's nuclear program. This has led to the collapse of the existential deterrence and had radically altered the strategic balance in our region
2: the tests are widely condemned by the international community and the U.S. imposes sanctions.
0: First, I I deplore the decision. I have made it clear to the leaders of Pakistan that we have no choice but to impose sanctions pursuant to the Glenn Amendment, as is required by law.
2: As a now openly nuclear South Asia approaches the 21st century, unbeknownst to most, over the past 20 years, A.Q. Khan had transformed himself into the largest and most sophisticated exporter on the nuclear black market. As we saw earlier, one of the reasons A.Q. Khan was able to develop Pakistan's nuclear program so successfully was because of his ability to gather and utilize an extensive global network of scientists, buyers and manufacturers, all of which he had acquired throughout his studies and career in the Netherlands
1: network. It includes um, some of the Pakistani nuclear scientists. It includes uh, some of these uh, European scientists. It includes mostly those European, in, in other countries as well, Asian as well, I should say, business companies who were dealing uh, in such materials which, which can be used for nuclear, nuclear uh, plants. So A.Q. Khan's social connections, also his professional dealings, and all those companies from whom he had acquired equipment and materials for Pakistan's nuclear program, they, they we, we rough, roughly for the sake of
2: um, ease, we call them AQ Khan Network. And it's these contacts that Khan offers to his first customer on the nuclear black market in 1987. His client, Iran.
1: Iran was going through its um, own uh, security dilemma with Iraq, the Iran-Iraq war. Iraq was using chemical weapons. Um, Iran was uh, on one side in all the Arab and Gulf countries uh, with, with many Western nations led by United States. On the other side, because of their own um, issues between them, Iran was quite desperate. But that's when, 19, around 1987, when they approached Pakistan, um, General Zia al-Haq for the first time asking him, they want help from Pakistan to build their nuclear program.
2: General Zia refuses to give Iran anything to help them build the bomb. With these official channels being unsuccessful, Iran turns to the black market and to A.Q. Khan for support.
1: The Iranian efforts through official circles, through official channels, uh, led it nowhere. When they talked to Pakistani General Ziaul Haq, um, Ziaul Haq told his um, staff members, okay, go and meet uh, the Iranian officials. Uh, but don't give them anything which actually helps them build the bomb. Pakistan wanted to be the preeminent Muslim state to have the bomb. So, Iranians were smart enough to knew there's no way that through General Ziaul Haqar, Pakistan's top leadership, they'll get something. And they knew about AQ Khan. So, they approached AQ Khan directly, and then a deal was cut uh, in in Dubai, where AQ Khan provided information to Iranians of his network, and actually brought some materials from Pakistan's own nuclear program as well, and handed those to, to, to Iran. And that's how the Iranian nuclear program, which was um, in very early stages of its development, got a real boost.
2: While the nature of A.Q. Khan's dealings with Iran had been that of a private business deal, the Pakistani military was far more involved in Khan's second customer, North Korea. His network managed a complex series of transactions between Pakistan and North Korea, and in exchange for missiles, A.Q. Khan provided information on centrifugal technology, the same tech that Khan had stolen from Uranco.
1: In case of North Korea, this was more of a Pakistani security need to have Um, have the long-range missiles. And the only cheap, long-range missiles that were accessible to Pakistan were being made by North Korea. When the negotiations between Pakistan and North Korea were kind of lingering on, that's when A.Q. Khan was sent. And A.Q. Khan won that um, deal by offering North Korea this nuclear centrifuge technology.
2: You may be wondering at this point how A.Q. Khan was able to carry out these highly illegal consequential dealings without being stopped. But it's hard to emphasise the amount of power A.Q Khan had in Pakistan during this time. It's no exaggeration to say that he was truly above the law.
1: There was this extraordinary power that A.Q Khan had, being known as the father of the Pakistani bomb. There was a tremendous respect also. so People would not question him. And those who were supposed to monitor him also lacked the kind of um, scientific know-how. Uh, to know exactly what A.Q. Khan was doing. If A.Q. Khan would show them a drum and say there, there are bullets in it or there's a bomb in it or there's centrifuges in it, they had no way of knowing even if they would look at those.
2: A good story which shows just how powerful A.Q. Khan had become can be found in the biography of Pervez Musharraf, the 10th President of Pakistan. Musharraf details his encounters with Khan.
1: That he was told by his, his Air Force chief about some 730 flights that were taking, going from Pakistani city of Quetta and then Zahidan into to, to the Iranian side, and Musharraf called A.Q. Khan and asked him, so uh, that what about this transaction? Because the Air Force Chief is not aware of it. What is in those c thirty planes that you are sending to Iran, and. A.Q. Khan, knowing fully well, he's talking to the head of the state, who's also a military chief, who at that time had almost imposed martial law and was all in all. And A.Q. Khan said to him, "Um, that is too sensitive a matter for me to share with you. But that also shows how powerful A.Q. Khan was.
2: It's around the mid-1990s that A.Q. Khan begins dealings with his largest and final client, Libya.
1: In case of Libya, it was a whole big comprehensive package deal which involved establishment of these nuclear kind of infrastructure outside Libya as well. And these were big consignments which were ultimately caught and that's how we know of uh, of the Libya program.
2: The scale of Khan's Libya operation is hard to understate. During this time, Khan was producing thousands of centrifuges for Libya's program Khan was also continuing operations with North Korea and was rumoured to be in talks with Syria over possibly providing support for a nuclear program. The scale of the Libya deal had not gone unnoticed though, and in 2003, international authorities seized the BBC China. Here is George Bush talking about the network in a lecture in 2004.
0: American and other nations are learning more about black market oper- operatives. The extent and sophistication of such networks can be seen in the case of a man named Abdul Qadir Khan. To increase their profits, Khan and his associates used a factory in Malaysia to manufacture key parts for centrifuges. Other necessary parts were purchased through network operatives based in Europe, in the Middle East, and Africa. This picture of the Khan network was pieced together over several years by American and British intelligence officers. Our intelligence services gradually uncovered this network's reach and identified its key experts and agents and money men. Operatives followed its transactions, mapped the extent of its operations. They monitored the travel of A.Q. Khan and senior associates. They shadowed members of the network around the world. They recorded their conversations. We know that Libya was not the only customer of the Khan network. Other countries expressed great interest in their services.
2: On the 31st of January in 2004, Khan was dismissed from his position by the Pakistani military and on the 4th of February, Khan appeared on state media and confessed to running a proliferation ring and trading secrets to Iran, North Korea and Libya. He later said the Pakistani military had forced him to confess.
1: The investigation has established that many of the reported activities did occur and that these were inevitably initiated at my behest. In my interviews, with the consul government officials, I was confronted with the evidence and the findings and I have voluntarily admitted that much of it is true.
2: What were the motivations behind Khan's actions? Of course, there was the money, with Khan personally gaining tens of millions of dollars with each deal. To this day, he still owns dozens of houses in Islamabad and owns a $10 million hotel in Timbuktu but there's a deeper motivation behind Khan's actions. For Khan, he saw his role as a challenge to Western hegemony and influence over the world.
1: He was very proud of the Muslim heritage and the great contributions uh, of Islamic scientists. So he would always refer to this great Islamic heritage of knowledge and scholarship, and then would lament the fact that where the Muslims stand today. His second thing was this uh, Muslim Ummah or Muslim uh, solidarity and together these two, the the political resistance narrative and this kind of religious solidarity, Islamic solidarity issue, combines to make it into what what he thought and what I call in my book's title as Defiance.
2: A.Q. Khan's reckless actions have increased the risk of a global nuclear disaster. Yet Khan's role as a national hero meant that despite the serious nature of his crimes, his punishment in Pakistan was light, a sentence of only five years' house arrest. He was never forced to identify the participants of his network, and intelligence agencies still don't know the full extent of his ring. General Musharraf refused to allow anyone to interrogate Khan after his confession, and forbade him for leaving Pakistan. In an attempt to protect the accomplices that had helped them infiltrate the network, the CIA. Burnt almost two tons of incriminating documents, along with thousands of hard drives, in Bern, Switzerland in 2008, all of which had been confiscated from three of Khan's accomplices. Now 82, since 2007 he has lived a relatively peaceful life in Islamabad, and AQ Khan has largely been forgotten about outside of Pakistan. But as we continue to grapple with the world's most volatile nuclear hotspots, his legacy remains clear.
1: We think of nuclear weapon states as somehow states which have really achieved something great. But if at a global level, you add so much honor and so much power and influence and status to nuclear weapon states, then we cannot, we should not feel, be surprised if states follow that path. Many other states, I mean, who feel that they need Kind of this extraordinarily powerful bomb to, to give them a sense of security that that's that's deplorable but the, i will link this with this global security norm which is given so much high status uh, to be a nuclear weapon state
2: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topics covered in this podcast, Dr. Hassan Abbas has recently written a book called Pakistan's Nuclear Bomb, a story of defiance, deterrence, and deviance.